0: Hello and welcome to the second episode of Paediatric Emergencies. I'm Chris Flanagan and I'm a paediatric intensivist from the United Kingdom and in this series I'm working my way through the common paediatric emergencies and trying to provide a structured approach to resuscitation and stabilisation of the critically ill child who needs intensive care support to be initiated outside Mm. the intensive care environment. So as I mentioned in the last episode I'm releasing these episodes in both an audio and video format along with an accompanying uh, text file. So you can watch these as video presentations on YouTube and my YouTube channel name is Paediatric Emergencies. So you'll find a link to that uh, channel in the uh, show notes and if you subscribe there um, you'll get notified automatically as and when I release a new episode. So I've also made the audio part of the talk um, available as a podcast And again, the name of the podcast is Pediatric Emergencies. Um, You can get the podcast from either iTunes or in any podcast browser, and again, just by searching Pediatric Emergencies, Um, although I'll put the links to the podcast feed into the description as well, both for iTunes and for um, non-iTunes podcast browsers. And again, I'd recommend that you subscribe there. So you get any new episodes as and when they're released. So as well as having a listen to the talk um, it's also worth having a look at the company and text file which again the link to this will be in the uh, description um, and this is really the corresponding chapter from the guide I'm writing entitled um, Waiting for the Pediatric Retrieval Team. Okay so let's get started with this episode um, and here I'm going to cover one of the most common paediatric emergencies, uh, status epilepticus, and like I did the last time, I'm going to start it off with a case. Okay, so the case is a 15-month-old girl who is brought into her local accident in the emergency department by ambulance, having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. So she had been previously fit and well child, um, with no significant past medical history of note, normal development, and all her vaccinations up to date. She doesn't take any regular medications and has uh, no known drug allergies. The only family history of note is that both her father and older sister had uh, febrile convulsions, but there's no family history of epilepsy. Um, and there's no history of trauma, foreign travel, sick contacts or possible toxin ingestion. She's been unwell for the last 48 hours with carisal symptoms and pyrexia. Uh, and apart from being more lethargic than usual, she has no other systemic symptoms of note. So she was at home when she just spiked a temperature um, for which her parents had administered some paracetamol and ibuprofen. And immediately following this, she started a seizing. So an ambulance was called. So, en route to the emergency department, the paramedics had given her one dose of rectal diazepam at five milligrams. So when she comes into the resuscitation area, you assess her using an ABCD approach. So her airway with a head tilt, chin lift is clear and patent. When you assess her breathing, she has a respiratory rate of 54 breaths per minute with uh, mild respiratory distress. Um, on auscultation, there's good air entry throughout her chest and as you'd expect, lots of transmitted signs from the upper airways. Peripheral oxygen saturations are ninety-five percent on the fifteen liters of um, oxygen via non-rebreather bag that you've applied. Looking at her circulation, um, although she's cool peripherally with some peripheral modelling, um, she's warm centrally with a cap refill time of less than two seconds. Heart rate is one hundred and sixty-eight beats per minute, which is shown as a sinus tachycardia on the monitor, and her blood pressure a little high for an age at one hundred eight over sixty-six. But what you'd expect during a seizure. Looking at her disability, she's having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Her pupils are large but react briskly and equally to light, and her blood sugar is 7.2 millimoles per litre. Um, When you check her temperature, it's elevated at 40.2 degrees C. Um, There's no evidence of any rash or trauma. So you go on to manage her as per the APLS guidelines. So as she has uh, good veins, you insert uh, an intravenous cannula rapidly, send off some routine bloods and give her one milligram of lorazepam, which is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram using an estimated weight of uh, 10 kilos. So 10 minutes following the lorazepam dose, she's still having ongoing seizure activity. So that's now two doses of benzodiazepines that she's had. The, the dose in the ambulance of rectal diazepam and now one dose of intravenous lorazepam. So you plan to load her up with some phenytoin um, at the dose of 20 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, so you give her 200 milligrams of phenytoin over 20 minutes. At the same time as hanging the phenytoin infusion, you ask for an anaesthetic review. Um, as you have no obvious source for this um. Temperature and can't exclude at this stage of encephalitis or meningitis, you cite a second intravenous line and elect to treat her with 50 milligrams of cathotaxine and 500 milligrams per meter squared of acyclovir. So another 20 minutes have passed following the phenotype loading dose um, and it's just completed, but she's still having ongoing seizure activity, so a decision is made for an RSI. So, this is a relatively common presentation um, that most emergency departments will be well used to managing. Um, and although many children settle down and seizures terminate with the initial treatment that's given, there's still a fair number of children who go on to need intensive care support. So, now I want to talk to you about how you should manage a child who does need um, an RSI and ongoing intensive care support. And like I did the last time, I'm going to do this using a systems-based approach, starting with the airway. So although many of the medications that uh, we give during a prolonged seizure can depress the breathing, um, most of the time, as long as the airway is patent, the child will continue to breathe adequately and maintaining good oxygen levels. Um, but the most important thing is actually maintaining a clear airway. Uh, And a simple way to do this is airway opening manoeuvres, so things like a head tilt and a chin lift as used in this case. However, if the seizure is occurring following uh, trauma, um, it would be important to note that a jaw thrust should be used in preference to a, a tilt and chin lift. Likewise, in a patient who hasn't had an injury, if you're not managing to maintain the airway with a head tilt and chin lift, a jaw thrust can be added in addition. And while you're doing this, it's important that high flow oxygen is administered, and the best way to do that is with a face mask, with a reservoir bag with uh, 10 to 15 litres of oxygen going through it. Um, and secretions will tend to build up during a seizure, um, and it's important that these are suctioned um, to maintain a patent airway. Um, if you're not able to maintain the airway with the above measures, um, it's often useful to insert a nasopharyngeal airway. Again, providing there's no history of trauma, as uh, a risk of basal skull fracture would be a country indication. Um, It's often not possible to insert a Gadel or oropharyngeal airway in a patient who's having a seizure, as the teeth are often clenched closed. So, looking at the indications for intubation in a child with a prolonged seizure, so I think first and foremost, if you're not able to maintain a patent airway, with all the above measures. Regardless of where you are in the algorithm, um, you should proceed to secure and protect the airway um, with an endotracheal tube using an RSI. So during the seizure, the patient's level of consciousness is going to be depressed, and their uh, Glasgow Coma scale is going to be less than 8. So they're not going to be able to protect their airway, should they vomit. And in this scenario, it will be important that the airway would be secured to prevent aspiration. Um, All the medications that are given for termination of the seizure have the potential to cause respiratory depression and in fact a respiratory arrest. So should this occur the respirations should be supported with a bag and mask Um, but this is really only a a temporary measure as you've got a patient with um, inadequate airway protective reflexes. They often have a stomach that's full of food and that is now being filled up with air as you're bagging the patient. So bag valve masks should really only be used while preparations for RSI are made for a shorter period of time as possible. So probably the most common reason for intubating a child with a prolonged seizure is that the seizure itself doesn't terminate um, with standard treatment. So looking at the algorithm, um, an RSI is recommended if the seizure hasn't terminated with the completion of the phenytoin or phenobarbital infusion. And the reason for doing this is that should the seizure be allowed to continue, the child is at high risk of cerebral damage. So should the seizure itself terminate with treatment there still may be a couple of reasons why you may want to intubate and secure this child's airway. Um, if there concerns about uh, raised intracranial pressure, intubation and ventilation to allow uh, CO2 control may be required, um, or you may want to transfer the child for neuroimaging um, and it may be decided that the safest way to do that is with a secure airway. So it would be good practice to um, inform the anaesthetist or intensivist whenever you're starting either phenytoin or phenobarbitone um, or if there's any airway concerns at any stage you should obviously let them know sooner than this. Um, and the reason for doing this is that um, preparation for an RSI takes time and really you want to be in a position to administer the anaesthetic um, the moment the phenytoin infusion is complete should the seizure be ongoing. As I've mentioned the longer the seizure goes on the higher the risk of uh, cerebral damage in this child. So planning is really important with this. It's also important that whenever you're phoning your anaesthetist or intensivist that you let them know um, the reason you're phoning them. You're not phoning them for an anaesthetic opinion on this child. And what I've seen in the past is sometimes a junior anesthetist comes to the emergency department to perform an assessment, but they're not confident to administer um, an RSI and intubate a child without their senior being present, which then, if they're at home, the the termination of the seizure is delayed. So it's important that you let them know on the phone that you would like an RSI performed in 20 minutes, um, should the seizure not terminate. So, that uh, they can get senior backup should they need it. So, should RSI be required, uh, the recommended drug to be used for induction is thiopentone due um, to its anti epileptic uh, properties. So, the recommended dose is 4 milligrams per kilogram, um, or if you're an alien, 2 milligrams per kilogram. However, all induction agents must be used with caution and the dose should be adjusted uh, according to response and the patient's hemodynamic status. So cardiovascular unstable patients should be given much less than the doses stated here. So if you don't have uh, thiopentone available, propofol would be uh, a suitable alternative, again, at uh, a dose adjusted according to the patient's hemodynamics. So um, with most patients um, with simple fibrile convulsions, um, and good hemodynamics, I wouldn't routinely volume load them prior to induction of anesthesia, but it would be important to have 10 to 20 mils per kilo of normal saline drawn up and prepared to administer should hemodynamic stability um, occur. Um, as you're using uh, thiopentone for induction, um, there's a risk of vasodilatation and hypotension with its uh, administration. So I think it's good practice to have some vasoactive drugs prepared to treat hypertension should it occur. And my personal preference is to use a little bit of push dose adrenaline, uh, one in a hundred thousand. Um, and I again just reserve that should hypertension occur. Um, so we come on to a uh, choice of muscle relaxant, um, and like most RSI's you have a choice between suxamethonium and uh, rocuronium uh, in an RSI dose. Um, so for prolonged seizures I think succimuthonium has a number of potential advantages over rocuronium, um, provided it's not uh, contraindicated and it would be my preferred uh, drug of choice in this scenario. So the dose of um varies um, depending on age, um, above a year um, it's often 1 mg per kilogram to 1.5 mg per kilogram. Um, below a year, uh, 2 mg per kilogram would be the normal dose. And the main reason for using it in uh, status epilepticus is its short duration of action. So you would expect the effects of succinylcholine to worn off after about 5 minutes. And at that stage, you're going to be able to perform a good neurological exam on your patient. So if the seizure doesn't terminate with the induction of anaesthesia, it's going to become clear pretty quickly. If you use an RSI dose of rocuronium, which is normally about a milligram per kilogram to 1.2 milligrams per kilogram, you can expect its effects to last 30 to 40 minutes. So if the seizure doesn't terminate with the bolus of thiopentone, it can be more difficult to tell if you've administered rocuronium. And if you have features such as persistent tachycardia, hypertension, or dilated pupils, it should make you very suspicious of ongoing seizure activity, which should be treated. And um, the effects of the seizure activity are just as damaging to the brain, whether you can see them or not. So the only problem with using uh, succimuthonium for all cases of prolonged seizure is that it's often contraindicated. Um, so the contraindications for using succinothonium are hyperkalemia, um, and you have a patient who's just had a prolonged seizure with lots of muscle activity, so often their potassium is high, precluding succumbathonium's use. Um, and it's also contraindicated in patients with prolonged immobility. And as many of the patients um, with who present with prolonged seizures have developmental delay, um, this may contraindicate the use of succinothonium in these patients. Um, Other contraindications include severe muscle trauma, personal or family history of malignant hyperthermia or burns greater than 10% uh, body surface area. So what I would probably say is use succinothonium where it's not contraindicated. Um, If it is contraindicated use rocuronium but have a low threshold for administering a further bolus of thiopentone should there be concerns that there's ongoing seizure activity. If you are going to use succinothonium, you may want to consider giving prophylactic atropine. Um, The dose of this is 20 micrograms per kilogram with a minimum dose of 100 micrograms and a maximum dose of 600 micrograms. It tends to be um, given more frequently in younger patients but certainly you should have it uh, drawn up for all intubations to use as rescue. And the the final thing I want to say, um, under airway, is that I would not routinely change the oral endotracheal tube for a nasal endotracheal tube, as we we do with many other conditions. And the reason for this is that you would expect this patient's uh, duration of intubation to be short. So when it comes to the the ventilation, um, we would tend to use routine settings on the ventilator. Um, for patients uh, intubated and ventilated for prolonged seizures. So a normal I:T ratio of uh, 1 to 2 for children under a year which is an eye time of 0. 0.6 to not 0.8, 1 to 5 years an eye time of 0. 0.8 to 1 second, between 5 and 12 years an eye time of 1 to 1.2 seconds and above 12 years an eye time of 1.2 to 1.5 seconds um, and then we would adjust it depending on the blood gas. So for our child, I would use an eye time of 0.8, uh, an e-time of 1.6, given a respiratory rate of 25 breaths per minute. Um, so from a pressure point of view, um, a peak pressure around about sort of 20 centimeters of water, um, or a tidal volume of 68 mL per kilo, is a reasonable starting point. And then again, would recommend adjusting that uh, depending on your blood gas. And just standard peep should be fine. So round about sort of five centimeters of water is a good starting point, and again adjust that depending on your oxygenation. So until um, raised intrapeneal pressure has been excluded, um, it's probably sensible to um, target a PaCO2 of uh, 4.5 to 5 kilopascals, and target a PaO2 of greater than 10 kilopascals. Um, once that's been excluded, you can relax that. And like any child you intubate and ventilate, um, a chest x-ray should be performed to confirm the endotracheal tube position. Um, so looking at the circulation, then so it's important to ensure the patient has uh, two working peripheral cannula. Um, in general, a central and arterial line um, aren't normally required unless the patient's hemodynamically unstable, or there's concerns about raised intracranial pressure. Um, I think a peripheral access is difficult. Um, the external jugular vein um, is often easily accessible. Again, providing um, raised intracranial pressure isn't a concern. And you should be ready monitoring ECG and non-invasive blood pressure, and this should be continued. So we'll move on to the disability then, so if you're planning to extubate this child locally um, once they're awake enough um, I wouldn't start any additional sedative agents unless the child is requiring transfer to CT. So although you can expect the effects of the thiopentone to wear off fairly quickly due to its redistribution Um, The sedating effects of the other anticonvulsants that will have been given and the postictal period often lasts longer. So it's often a little while before the patient's ready to extubate. So if you've used rocuronium for RSI, you often do need to administer a number of boluses or something short-acting like uh, propofol um, until the effects of the rocuronium have worn off. If the facilities don't exist to uh, safely extubate the child locally, um, then it would start routine sedation. So, morphine of 10 to 60 mics per kilo per hour and midazolam, 1 to 4 mics per kilo per minute. So, one of the key points I really want to stress here is that you should try where possible to avoid uh, further use of muscle relaxants, as this is going to interfere with your clinical neurological assessment. But if it's unavoidable, and um, after trying sedation boluses, you still feel that you need to start a muscle relaxant, um, it's much better to do this um, by a bolus rather than an infusion. Another point, um, I wouldn't routinely tape the eyes closed, provided they close normally, as you're going to be wanting to assess the pupils regularly as part of your ongoing CNS observations. Um, It's also important to regularly monitor the the blood sugar. Um, Then we come on to whether we should or shouldn't perform a CT scan of the brain. Um, and I think whether you do that depends on whether the seizure has any atypical features. Um, Are there focal neurological signs? Is there signs of raised intracranial pressure? Or is there something worrying in the history? or is the etiology of the seizure uncertain? And I think if that's the case then you should perform a CT brain but for example if you have a patient with uh, known epilepsy and uh, numerous admissions for prolonged seizures um, you may decide not to perform a CT scan if there was no worrying features on the history. So our patient from the initial case history has um, a very typical history of a prolonged febrile convulsion, which was generalized tonic-clonic, associated with a sudden spike in pyrexia, and has a strong family history of febrile convulsions, and no abnormal uh, or worrying features on her uh, neurological exam. So my approach to her would be not to perform uh, a CT scan initially, but should I have concerns with her neurology at, at any stage, or if she wasn't waking like I expected her to do um, after the RSI then I would proceed to a CT scan at that stage. So if there's any concern at any stage about uh, raised intracranial pressure um, and things that would make you worry about that would be for example a relative bradycardia with hypertension, focal neurological signs, um, poorly reactive or unequal pupils, papilledema or abnormal Dawes eye reflexes. This should be treated immediately with 3 mils per kilo of 3% hypertonic saline over 15 minutes and starting uh, neuroprotective measures. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on neuroprotective measures here um, because I'm planning to do a separate talk on raised ICP but important things would be keeping the head up at 30 degrees and in the midline trying to avoid necklines. Um, If the patient has a collar on, making sure it's not too tight and making sure you don't set the peak too high. And all the above measures um, encourage venous drainage um, from the head. Um, It's important that you control the amount of blood getting into the head by uh, maintaining the CO2 between about 4.5 to 5 kilopascals and making sure your PaO2 is greater than 10. Um, It's important that you meet the minimum cerebral perfusion target. Um, again, I'll cover this in the talk on raised ICP uh, and making sure your patient is normothermic and well sedated. Okay, so now I'm going to come on to sepsis. Um, it's important to note that um, pyrexia itself can be the cause of a seizure. so what we call a femoral convulsion, which tends to occur in children between six months of age and six years. The cause of pyrexia is often a simple viral illness, and the seizure tends to occur whenever there's a sudden rise in pyrexia. And it's this sudden rise in temperatures effect on the developing brain that causes the febrile convulsion. It's also important to note that uh, a seizure, and particularly a prolonged seizure, can cause a pyrexia in a child even in the absence of infection. And it's the increased muscle activity and cerebral activity that causes the paresia. So interpreting paraxia in the setting of a prolonged seizure is difficult, and I think if there's any suspicion at all that this could be in a meningitis or encephalitis, or that the cause of the parexia is unknown, then a safe approach would be to administer intravenous antibiotics and a cyclovir until further information becomes available. And from an antibiotic point of view, for community acquired infection intravenous uh, cefotaxime, 50 milligrams per kilogram um, is appropriate for most patients and if you have a child that's uh, 3 months or less um, you should add in some amoxicillin to cover uh, listeria meningitis. Um, the acyclovir dosing um, varies depending on the child's age but the common mistake I see is that people don't use the high dose, the encephalitis dose and I think if you're going to be administered in psych- in this scenario, it's to cover and so make sure you use the right dose. So, provided it doesn't delay the administration of the antimicrobials, a blood culture should be taken prior to their administration where possible. Um, however, a lumbar puncture is contraindicated in the, the postictal phase and must not be performed. So I just want to stress here that a normal CT scan does not rule out increased intracranial pressure and even if you suspect this child does have a meningitis or an encephalitis you should not perform a lumbar puncture at this stage. It can be done at a later stage when raised intracranial pressure can be excluded by clinical examination in the intensive care environment. So I've already mentioned that um, in children between six months and six years of age a high temperature itself can cause a seizure and that if the child is having Ongoing temperatures are obviously at risk of having a further seizure, so temperature should be controlled. So, there's a number of methods to do this, um, and using antipyretics such as paracetamol or ibuprofen is probably one of the most effective ways. Um, The ibuprofen can only be given um, interally, so, once you've got the nasogastric tube in, you can give it that way. Um, Whereas, paracetamol, though, can also be given via the nasogastric tube. Can also be given rectally or intravenously, so it can be given prior to getting that nasogastric tube in. If the patient's warm, they should be exposed by removing uh, blankets and unnecessary uh, clothing, and a cooler fan um, can be used to help lower the temperature. If the above measures are ineffective and the temperature is continuing to rise and there's concerns that it will trigger a further seizure. You can uh, try more active killing measures such as placing ice packs over the axilla and the groin. We're going to come on to renal now. So, um, you're going to be putting all these patients up on maintenance fluids um, for transfer to intensive care or while they're nil by mouth and following the intubation and possible extubation period. So like all intensive care patients they're at risk of SIADH so intravenous fluids should be restricted. I use 80% of maintenance as a standard and you should use isotonic fluids. So normal saline with 5% dextrose plus or minus added potassium depending on the serum potassium level. We don't normally uh, need to catheterize the bladder in children who Intubated and ventilated for status epilepticus, as they tend to extubate relatively quickly. However, if there's concerns regarding sepsis or pyrexia with uh, no obvious source, it's often a good opportunity while the patient is asleep to perform an in-out catheter specimen of urine. So, moving on to gastrointestinal, it's important to insert a nasogastric tube our orogastric tube if there's uh, any history of trauma. Um, this should then be aspirated to remove any swallowed air that may be spent in the diaphragm and then leave it on free drainage. So looking at the labs and electrolytes um, in all patients with a prolonged seizure I would routinely check a full blood picture, urea, electrolytes, liver function tests, calcium, magnesium, phosphate, CRP, and send off a blood gas um, with their lactate on it. Um, if I'm going to start antibiotics because of concerns regarding uh, sepsis, um, I would also check a blood culture. And if the patient's on uh, regular anticonvulsants, um, it'll be worth sending off some levels to see if those levels are therapeutic. So if the cause of the seizure is unknown, um, it would also be worth sending off a metabolic screen, including ammonia and sending off a toxicology screen as well in addition to the above investigations. If the above investigations show hyponatremia which could be responsible for the seizures uh, the recommended treatment is 4 mL per kilo of 3% hypertonic saline over 15 minutes Um, and this is normally enough to terminate the seizure if this is the cause. And if there's any signs of hypoglycemia it should be treated in the standard way with 2ml per kilo of 10% dextrose. So now I want to move on to the drugs and infusions that are used for the treatment of prolonged seizures um, and to cover them in a little bit more detail. So the first drug I want to look at is lorazepam. So studies have shown that um, intravenous lorazepam is more effective than both rectal diazepam and buccal midazolam and that it also has a lower risk of respiratory depression and a longer duration of use than both these other drugs. So where possible it should be used first-line for the treatment of status epilepticus. But that's provided intravenous access can be rapidly established. If it can't then you should use one of the other drugs. So, the normal dose is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram up to a maximum of 4 milligrams. Um, And this dose can be repeated after 10 minutes if the seizure is still ongoing, provided no more than two doses of any benzodiazepine are given. Um, And it's important that you include the pre hospital medications when making that assessment. So, the reason for not giving any more than two doses of benzodiazepines are that the benzodiazepines work best early in status epilepticus and studies have shown that the further status epilepticus goes on the less likely benzodiazepines are to work. So uh, by administering a third dose of benzodiazepines it's unlikely to work and all you really will be doing is delaying the administration of another medicine which is more likely to work as well as this the risk of Respiratory depression increases significantly if more than two doses of benzodiazepines are given, so it should not be done. When you look at the APLS algorithm for status epilepticus, they recommend that the first dose of benzodiazepines should be intravenous lorazepam, uh, provided that um, intravenous access can be rapidly established, and if not, you should use either buccal or rectal diazepam. However, looking at the algorithm, you can see that the second dose of benzodiazepines for in-hospital administration should be lorazepam. And that should be either via an intravenous line or an intriosis line. So it's important that if intravenous access can't be rapidly established, go on ahead and give an alternative treatment. But by the time it gets to 10 minutes, you should have either intravenous or intraosseous access so that lorazepam can be used for your second dose of benzodiazepines and also you're going to need that intravenous or intraosseous access to administer the other medications that are required. When using any benzodiazepine it's important that you monitor respiration as respiratory depression is a risk and be prepared to support the respiration with bag and valve mask should respiratory depression occur. Now, I want to look at uh, buccalmidazolam. So, studies have shown that buccalmidazolam is more effective than rectal diazepam, um, so it should be used first line when intravenous access cannot be rapidly established. And uh, the risk of respiratory depression between buccalmidazolam and rectal diazepam is the same. So, the dose is 0.5 milligrams per kilogram administered buccally, up to a maximum dose of 10 milligrams. So now I want to go on to diazepam. So as we've already said, um, both uh, intravenous lorazepam and uh, buclamidazolam are more effective. So rectal diazepam should really be reserved for cases where intravenous access can't be rapidly established and buclamidazolam is either unavailable or country-indicated. Um, I'm going to cover the dose in any way, so the dose is 0.5 mg per kilogram rectally, up to a maximum dose of 10 mg. So should intravenous access be available, however, uh, lorazepam is unavailable. Um, Intravenous diazepam can be administered instead uh, in a dose of 0.25 mg per kilogram, up to a maximum dose of 10 mg. This can also be given via intraosseous injection. Um, and one important note when using diazepam is that you should, where possible, use the diazepam emulsion, i.e. the diazemules, as this preparation is uh, least urgent to the veins. So I'm going to go on to um, phenytoin. So phenytoin is indicated um, if the seizure hasn't been terminated after two doses of benzodiazepines. So phenytoin should be administered in a dose of 20mg per kilogram, up to a maximum dose of one5 grams, by intravenous infusion over 20 minutes via a 0.25 to 0.5 micron filter with ECG and blood pressure monitoring. If the patient's already on maintenance phenytoin, uh, phenobarbitone should be used instead, and I'm going to cover the dose of phenobarbitone shortly the only situation where it is okay to go ahead and administer more phenytoin is if you know that the plasma phenytoin level is less than five milligrams per liter so another important point that i want to stress is that phenytoin should be avoided in cardiovascularly unstable patients Um, and in this scenario i would use phenobarbitone instead you can consider checking a plasma level Um, one to two hours after completion of the loading dose of phenytoin and the normal therapeutic range is 6 to 15 milligrams per liter for those under three months of age and for those three months of age and greater the normal therapeutic range is 10 to 20 milligrams per liter so this isn't something that I would routinely do uh, in all patients as most of the time you give a phenytoin loading dose and don't give any more because the seizures terminated and there's no further recurrence So I'd probably reserve phenytoin levels for patients who have recurrent seizures following phenytoin loading dose, or where I'm planning to start uh, maintenance phenytoin. So as preparation of the phenytoin infusion takes time, it's good practice to start preparing this immediately after administering the second dose of benzodiazepines. So that if the seizure doesn't terminate 10 minutes after the second dose of benzodiazepines, you're ready to go with the phenytoin infusion without any delay. And I would actually have the infusion in the infusion pump with the rate set and connected up to the patient so that I'm ready to just hit the go button once 10 minutes have passed following the second dose of benzodiazepines. So now I want to go on to um, phenobarbitone. So it's mainly used where uh, the patient is on maintenance phenytoin. Um, or where um, phenytoin is contraindicated. It's the same dose as you would give phenytoin, 20 mg per kilogram, and is given by intravenous infusion over 20 minutes, up to a maximum dose of 1 gram. It's also recommended that you can consider checking the plasma levels 2-3 to three hours following completion of the loading dose to confirm that you've got the level up into the therapeutic range, which is 15-40 to 40 milligrams per litre. So now I want to cover um, Peraldehyde. So up until 2011 um, Peraldehyde was in the APLS algorithm. They decided to remove this um, from the algorithm but not from the guidelines and that is because there is very little evidence that Peraldehyde actually works and there is quite good evidence that earlier administration of phenytoin is more likely to be effective. So the, the old algorithm was that you would give the baraldehyde after the second dose of benzodiazepines and wait an additional 10 minutes before starting the phenytoin. So in removing it from the algorithm you got the phenytoin in that bit earlier. So what's currently recommended is that uh, at the same time as phenytoin you have the option to give baraldehyde, but this administration shouldn't delay the administration of the phenytoin So you should make your phenytoin up first, and then if you want to, you can make up some peraldehyde and give it. Um, If you do want to give it, the dose is 0.8 ml per kilo of a 50% peraldehyde, 50% olive oil, um, pre-mixed enema, up to a maximum dose of 20 ml. So contrary to what the evidence says, I personally have found peraldehyde to be quite effective, so I do give it at the same time as the phenytoin. Um, but it's really up to yourself whether you do or don't want to give it. So now you want to come on to refractory seizures or recurrent seizures following uh, induction of anaesthesia and the treatment options that you have for these. So this is much rarer than the prolonged seizure which settles with induction of anaesthesia. And the first thing that I would advise if you think this is what's going on would be to discuss this with the retrieval team who will likely conference in a paediatric neurologist onto the call and a decision about further management will be made. So it would be important to check that you've identified and treated any electrolyte abnormalities. Um, If you haven't already looked for toxin ingestion or metabolic problems um, these investigations should be sent off And again, if a CT scan of the brain hasn't been performed, um, it's probably worth doing this now. Um, Another thing to think about is paradoxical-dependent seizures. Um, And the current guidance is this should be considered in all children under two years of age with refractory status epilepticus with no obvious cause, although these commonly present in the neonatal period. So after a discussion with a paediatric neurologist, If the decision is made to try a trial of paradoxin, um, the normal dose is 100 milligrams given by slow intravenous injection over three to five minutes. So now I want to come on to the three main treatment options for refractory status epilepticus, um, which are midazolam infusion, thiopentone infusion, and high dose phenobarbital. So I'm going to start with midazolam infusion because I think this is probably the option you're going to be most likely asked to start. So you start off with an intravenous bolus of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram up to a maximum dose of 10 milligrams of midazolam and then start a continuous infusion of 4 mics per kilo per minute which is the upper end of the sedation dose. You should continue to monitor for seizure activity. And if after five minutes there's ongoing seizure activity, you repeat the bolus and increase the rate of the infusion by four mics per kilo per minute, up to eight mics per kilo per minute. And uh, you continue this sequence every five minutes, give it a 0.5 milligrams per kilogram bolus and increasing the rate of the infusion by four mics per kilo per minute until either the seizure is controlled or a maximum dose of 32 mics per kilo per minute is reached. So obviously with using such high doses of benzodiazepines you should expect cardiovascular instability and be prepared to support the cardiovascular system. So if the seizures aren't controlled by the time you reach 32 mcs per kilo per minute um, you should stop the midazolam and start a thiopentone infusion. So I'm going to cover the thiopentone now, Um, so you tend to start this off with a, a standard loading dose. Which is 4 mg per kilogram or 2 mg per kilogram in a neonate, and then start an infusion at 2 mg per kilogram per hour. Obviously, all the doses I've mentioned will need to be reduced if you have a hemodynamically unstable patient. The thiopentone infusion should then be titrated to seizure control, um, which ideally should be assessed as burst suppression using either EEG or CFAM. Um, the maximum dose you can use of thiopentone is 10 milligrams per kilogram per hour. Um, with thiopentone infusion you should expect hypotension and a central line should be cited and uh, if any hypotension occurs it is likely to be due to vasodilatation. so noradrenaline would be the ideal drug uh, to treat any hypotension. So the third treatment option I want to, to mention for refractory status epilepticus would be high-dose phenobarbitone. Um, so with this, after um, administration of a normal loading dose, you just continue to repeat half loading doses of phenobarbitone, uh, 10 milligrams per kilogram, every 30 minutes until seizure is controlled, up to a maximum of 120 milligrams per kilogram per day. So, the studies they looked at refractory stance epileptics in children um, using high dose phenobarbital um, showed serum levels as high as uh, 343 milligrams per liter um, required to achieve seizure control. Um, and most of the children did seem to tolerate this well from a cardiovascular point of view, um, but most children did require intubation and ventilation for respiratory depression. So finally, I just want to mention some of the other uh, treatments for refractory status epilepticus. Um, so when starting one of the other three treatments um, that I've mentioned, um, often the neurologist will want you to add in an additional anticonvulsant. Um, both levetiracetam and sodium valproate are made available in intravenous preparations, which can be added in, or to paramet can be given by the nasogastric tube. Um, There's some evidence that ketamine may be helpful um, for the late treatment of refractory status epilepticus. Um, Likewise, um, isoflurin has been shown to induce burst suppression in refractory status epilepticus. However, there was a high rate of seizure recurrence once the isoflurin was discontinued. It's also important to note that all the patients in the studies needed vasopressor support for hypotension. So, not all the volatile anesthetic agents share this property, and in fact, cebofluorine um, can cause epileptiform discharges. The, the final treatment I want to mention is propofol infusion, um, which has been used with some success in adults. However, um, due to the risk of propofol infusion syndrome in children, um, this isn't a therapy that can be recommended. So I hope you find that useful. Please get in contact if you do have any comments or questions. And I'd recommend you have a look at the accompanying book chapter. To which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Um, I'm probably going to try and get another podcast out in the next few weeks. So if you subscribe either at uh, YouTube or through your podcast browser. um, You'll get automatic notification of when that podcast is released. Thanks for listening.